So it's been three weeks, so let's um, right, we'll review quickly. The, um, the thesis I'm trying to set out is that um, Gemara, which, which explains why, um, why Rabba or Rava did not permit X to kill uh, X to kill Y at the behest of Z, or to stop Z from killing X, uh, is because of the question, what says your blood is redder? And um, I'm trying to make two claims about that. One is that it's a rhetorical question. Uh, right? there's, no, there's no answer, which is not obvious, right? Because you can obviously give a whole set of answers, and we talked about all the circuits that have that. And two, that it is best understood philosophically. Um, right? Now, there are really, th- I guess, three ways of understanding it. There's a Malabatish way of understanding it. Uh, who says your blood is red? It's okay, we'll figure out what, what that means. There's a legal way of understanding it. Um, and there are really two different legal ways of understanding it. Right. One legal way of understanding it is as a claim you can't commit murder to save a life. And then that will ramify to say you can't commit murder to, um, to save a life. What about, uh, ma- what, what about manslaughter? Uh, what about ignoring a chiyaf atzala? Right, right. So right, right, the logic of them applies equally to any avera sheyeshbo chayim or avera sheyeshbo shvichus namim or something like that. And that's debated. And then the question is whether if we think it stands for the legal principle, do we think that it stands for the legal principle even in cases where the svara doesn't apply? Uh, right, so even in cases, so there are a couple of, of nafkaminas like that. One is whether it's reversible. Right, do we say who says his blood is better than yours? Or do we say that we, right, you really have to prefer the other person's life? So if it's... If it's um, if it's just a legal principle, so you can imagine situations where you have a duty to somebody else that exceeds your duty to yours legally, and the, reverse, and the fact that the svar is reversible, so what? Um, whereas if, it, right, we, if we say that it just gives you the parameters of the law, uh, right, so then we'll say it's reversible. Right? That's a, famously, according to Chaim, and uh, certainly true in one half of it, Tosfut says explicitly that it's reversible. Uh, Rav Chaim famously claims that the Rambam says it's not reversible. And that there are circumstances where you have to actively give up your life to uh, to save somebody else. Uh, Justice comes up with the case of uh, somebody saying that they'll throw you onto a baby, and you'll kill the baby, and you'll kill the baby. So you are not committing the avera. Um, so is that is that a case where you have to actively intercede, to, right, to get yourself killed to save somebody, right, to save the baby, even though you're not the person committing the massa, the massa avera? And the whole debate about that, the chasnish thinks Ruchaim is off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember Rabbi Blau telling me that it was like one of the cases of the Chazanish is just looking at Rochev and saying, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, with completed comprehension was, uh, was his uh, description. But all, right, all those machlokos, all those machlokos um, play out. Uh, right? Rochev essentially sets it up as machlokos in the Ramam and the Tosfos. The Ramam thinks that all my, uh, I think the really radical notion, the Ramam thinks that all my Chazanish does is tell you how to navigate machlokot um, at the abstract level when you're doing figuring out whether the heter of the chayyim should apply to a particular avera. So the answer is, since we say mechazis, so the right, so the heter of the chayyim doesn't apply to the right, doesn't apply to these averas, which is what the context, at least one context, of gemara is. Right, the gemara says, what are the things you're, you're which are the averas that are your yavur? And the answer is, these are the Averis of Yehurig Yavor, but once these are the Averis of Yehurig Yavor, the Svar, right, disappears entirely from law. The Svar exists, they usually frame it on the legislative level, not the judicial level. 
it tells you, right? So we have, right, so we have all, right? So those are legal ways of framing it, right? Whether, um, whether really the law, right? The law is determined by the applicability of the svara, or the svara, uh, or, or the law is um, independent of the svara, and the law can be independent of the svara in two ways, right? One is, you know, that there's on a detail level, one is on a on a, a very on a very broad level. Okay, the um, the third way, which is what I'm arguing for, is that there's a that it actually establishes a philosophic or ethical principle, and that the law, in the end, has to coincide with the um, has to coincide with the outcomes of the eth- of the ethical principle, which may or may not be the same thing as the mechanism of the reasoning. But it's not right. It's not. It's not a. It's nothing that functions within the halachic system. And it's not something, right? And it doesn't necessarily tell you the um, in advance the outcome of the logic system, but it tells you the range of outcomes that are possible within the halachic system. Right? You can't if you end up with something that is in violation of this principle, then you have it wrong. Okay, but that requires us to right to frame the principle in terms that are not purely halachic. Uh, okay, so I. Wanted to argue that the best tool we have for that is Kant's categorical imperative, which already gives us a um, gives us a, you know, a set of philosophic framings of a principle like this, and it gave it gives us two in particular. Um, one is framed as the um, as the claim that all that whatever you do, you have to want everyone else to do it in relationship to you, right? Yes, right. Everyone has to behave the same way with regard to all situations, and you can't. You, right, and so the the outcomes can never relate to any subjective characteristic of either the actor or the acted upon, um, and that's a test halachically. There's the obvious case, right? So we talked about how that relates to all the all the uh, all the sugyot that seem to suggest you can make distinctions based on characteristics ranging from gender to uh, to shevet um, to Jew- to Jewishness. Okay, right. That's a and the second one was the claim that. All human, like one human life can never be tra- human life can never be treated as a means rather than an ends. Okay, that faces you know, uh, the clearest challenge in war, um, which is a, a question that we haven't discussed. But um, but it also creates spaces possibly for heterim, because it may allow you to do things um, to that that in practice prefer one life over another, as long as the ground for doing that is not making Right, is not making one life a means and the other life an end. All right, that was the right. That was the big argument I wanted to make. So there's the right. So there's, but there's an extension, but also a contraction in framing it philosophically, that it may right, that it may actually allow action as long as in the end, as long as, long as in the end, you would want everyone to make the same decision, in, right, um, regardless of which circumstance they were in, um, and right, and the ground of decision is not that. So then. There's space. So I gave an example of that. An example I gave of that was how to deal with certain kinds of triage situations. Um, and what I argued was that um, perhaps there is a principle that allows doctors to maximize the utility of the medical interventions at their disposal. And what, therefore, we can frame certain kinds of triage decisions, allocation of ventilators being uh, the example that came up most Lamasa in the last several years, but it shows up you know, anytime you have to deal with an allocation of scarce, a scarce resources phenomenon, that in, that in circumstances where you're not preferring one life or the other because you think that life is better, because I think that life is more valuable, even because you think there's more of that life, 
another because I'm assuming that this further prevents quantity arguments as well as as, as well as quality, as quality arguments. I won't let you choose between uh, somebody living a year and somebody living five years. Right, I get the whole question of 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 commensurate infinites or not, but we're right. We're gonna try and try and bracket that, and I'm also going to assume for now that we're not even going to make distinctions such as Chayesha versus Chayolam. Uh, although in principle, maybe you can make those, and maybe that would be a little bit different. I'm not sure, um, and that will come up in, the, in this year. But essentially, what we're trying to do is I have X amount of I have X amount of me- of of, you know, of medical intervention. X amount of medical intervention could maximally save X number of lives. I'm going right. I'm going. I, I, I as a medical professional, as a as a hospital administrator, as a doctor, whatever it may be, I have a, a right and a duty to utilize them in the way which saves the most lives. That will, in fact, mean that I right that you don't get a ventilator. You do get a ventilator, but the reason I'm making that has nothing to do with the value of your life. It certainly doesn't have to do with making one life a means to another. It has to do with an independent principle, right? So that was the. I think a, uh, a fairly large chiddush that um, right that could emerge, and it you know if it were accepted, it it solves a lot of problems that uh, otherwise postkim just can't find their way <coughs> can't find their way out of or make stuff up uh, that isn't okay. So um, the place where I really first started thinking this way, uh, not I, I always thought my chazit was the first principle as far as that as I can remember, but thinking about how framing it philosophically would be helpful was in the context of, uh, of brain death. So let's talk a little bit about what the sugya of brain death is. Um, there is a, um, a famous uh, Gemara in Yoma, which talks about if somebody's buried under, uh, right, under a pile of wreckage on Shabbat, um, and you're digging them out, at what point must you stop digging because they're dead? So the Gemara is a machlokas, right? Whether whether you, whether you have to uncover their head or you have to right, or you have to un- uncover their navel, and that reasonably can be taken as a question of whether you have to uh, whether you have to check for a cessation of respiration or a cessation of of car- of, of, cardi- of cardiac activity. Uh, it doesn't tell you how long you have to wait to uh, to check for that, and neither of them are definitions of death. Right? Well, there are diagnoses of death. Um, and we know that those diagnoses are affected by external circumstances. If you find somebody frozen uh, right in the tundra, so it might be that there's no right, there's no damage to their organs from oxygen deprivation because everything's frozen, and you might be able to revive them after much longer, even though they have no cardiac activity, no right, no breathing. All right, it used to be like a big plot in you know in mid nineteen late nineteenth early twentieth century mysteries. The big thing was curare, uh, right? Because they're like exotic poisons, and curare can apparently cause the uh, right cause the mimicking of uh, right of, sta- of sta- you know, can make the can make respiration and and heartbeat so difficult to detect, at least with the, the tools generally available. And if you're not an expert, that you right, it's, indis- it's, indis- it's indistinguishable from death. All uh, right, so that's, so that's just a, a point. We don't have a definition. We don't really have an objective criteria. This came to a head in the um, late 18th century when the German government um, passed a regulation forbidding burial within three days, I believe, uh, for fear that people were being buried alive, which they were. Uh, right, all these you know, terrifying stories of, um, of coffins that were opened and scratched on the inside because uh, people were diagnosing death um, too early. And they have the whole 
whole period where people put alarm bells inside coffins and things like that. But who's listening, right? They'll write this. Uh, right? And so the German government, um, or at least one German state, right? There was, right, there was no Germany yet. Um, issued a rule requiring, I think, if I recall correctly, a 72-hour wait before burial. And the, um, and the um, I think it's Mendelssohn writes uh, in favor of this halakhically, because after all, it's very sensible, it's because nefesh. And because nefesh should override the mitzvah of rapid burial. And the Chassam Sofa writes a very, very sharp um, tshuva a disagreeing. And says that you know, we have our we have our, our traditional means of determining death, and if they don't always work, that you know we'd follow halacha and halacha, uh, right, right? That's how we paskin, uh, right? That we allow we allow encourage demand immediate burial, um, but that just pointed out that it wasn't the definition; it was a diagnosis. Now it could reasonably argue that there's an old, you know, there are other circumstances in which people. Know that people right people would agree that somebody is dead, um, and the the classic case is decapitation. Now, people who are decapitated or dead. That seems to be a, a full consensus halachically. Um, but to some extent, that case points up the absence of a definition, because why are they dead? Uh, right. We have we have a whole bunch of cases where um, you have. You have Lazarus reflexes, which show the body that the body can still twitch uh, after what's normally called death, and certainly after um, right after decapitation, uh, maybe the head can speak, or uh, for briefly, right as long before oxygenation is lost, because there's nothing per se, right about the severing of the neck that causes death. It's the right. It's eventually the lack, lack, uh, right, lack, of, lack of oxygenation which causes the death of all the individual organs. Um, so you have like all sorts of cases like this. You know, Gemara has test cases for it. Uh, the the easy test case always is if somebody gives a get at point right at point X in the dying process uh, and does is their wife Zukalivama or not? Because right, the get 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 isn't chalach or misa, so you have to figure out exactly when the person died in order to figure out whether the get. That's the, that's the test case the Gemara comes up with. To uh, and you know it's not so unrealistic that people being put to death in horrible ways by Romans would authorize a get. You know, at, at some point in the process, maybe you could write it immediately, whatever it may be. Um, so you have all sorts of cases which I argued show that we don't have a definition of death at, that is distinct from dying, right, which is uh, which is problematic. Uh, that that became you know, more extreme because of the development of the criteria of brain death. Now, part of it is shifting conceptions of what the brain does, uh, although people like never thought that the brain was irrelevant to intellectual functioning, right? That's you know, any more than they thought that the emotions were really in the kidneys. I don't know when the metaphors come in, but people understand when you bang people in the head, they go unconscious, right? <laughs> Things like that, right? So, yeah, so it's not never entirely clear to me. Uh, we, we don't have Harvey's understanding of the circulatory system, right? So, uh, earlier, right? So the whole question of what they thought the heart was doing. Is really challenging. If they don't know about oxygen, what do they think the, right, what, what exactly do they think respiration does, or let alone, you know, right, all sorts of, it's not, we don't, I don't think we can entirely recreate, although we have to be very careful about what I call reverse anachronism, right, because they had, often they had other ways of explaining the same thing. I used to talk about how the Nitziv, the, the Ron has this marvelous thing about souls, you know, there are souls which um, 
which have a natural tendency to sink, and souls which have a natural tendency to rise. And you realize like he's using and he's using physical metaphors. That's how he understands gravity. Right? There are things which have a natural desire to sink, and there are things which have a natural desire to rise. And the rise since your soul has lead and has lead and helium in it. And right, right. That's, but and so they're not unaware of the data. Right? It's like you know, Newton doesn't suddenly realize, oh, things fall because an apple conks something. Everybody knew that if you dropped something, it fell. The question is, what conceptual superstructure you have that right to explain the fact that things that things fall? And the whole cop of Newton is that they're not falling. Right, that they're right. That things are being attracted towards each other in proportion to the in proportion to their mass. Right, so right, so you have to be very careful when you talk about what Chazal's medicine was, let alone you know how what the Ramah's medicine was, and, and whether they're the same or not. You have to be very careful about uh, proje- about projecting one onto the other. Okay, but it sounds like you know it's like decapitation or being cut. In, you know debate about exactly which ways you have to be cut, you know, under which, which axis you have to be cut in order to, in order to be considered dead logically. But we get, you get the idea that certain kinds of, uh, certain kinds of um, being drawn and quartered, right, you're dead. Um, and it's reasonable to say decapitation is death, right? And then we have these, but that's not how people, right, people don't usually get decapitated. So death is usually determined by some kind of informal uh, determination of cessation of breathing or heartbeat. Okay, then... Um, the criteria of brain death are developed in the late '60s. Right, the Harvard the Harvard the Harvard Commission meets and right. I forget what the commission is called. That's right, and, and develop these criteria for death of the brain. And there are um, several reasons that death of the brain can be attractive. One, it offers a possibility, perhaps, for some kind of definition, uh, because right, the heart not. Because we have, we have heart lung machines, right? So we know that there, right, it's possible to sustain a human body which has neither working heart, right, neither working heart nor work, nor working lungs. So the capacity for autonomous respiration or for autonomous heartbeat is clearly not definitional to human life anymore, unless we assume that people in our lung machines are dead and heart lung machines are dead, right? So right, so that probably puts some pressure on traditional on traditional definitions, and whereas you could say uh, oh, the brain is what makes you human. And so if the brain is really, really not functioning, so you could be alive in some sense, but you're not a live human being. Right? That was a big attraction of the brain death, uh, of, the bra- of the brain death criteria that allowed for a certain kind of definition. Also, I think people became more and more aware, I don't know exactly how, that uh, whatever definition of death you use does not mean the death of every cell in the body simultaneously. Everybody is buried with some cells alive. So if you define death as, you know, right, which might have been a svara, you're dead when all the cells in your body are dead. So nobody ever had a definition of death that could um, that could that could suffice to to accomplish that. So that put pressure on traditional conceptions of death, but there was also pressure a different way, which was the development of organ transplantation. Um, and the thing about organ transplantation is that the organs don't last um, if the heart is not the heart. Right? If the if the if the um, if the if the organs of the body are not being perfused, right? they're, not, they're, not, right? they're not not being oxygenated, so they die fairly rapidly. So if you wait for um, if you if you wait for the for, for the end of heartbeat, then you wait some reasonable time after the last heartbeat you right, you hear or the last breath you hear. So there is vast organ damage and organ donation becomes, especially to the heart. 
Okay, so the question is whether the um, whether the um, criteria, right? So the criteria, the criteria given for brain death allow you to declare death while there is still a heartbeat and uh, and respiration. Um, not autonomous, but we already said a cessation, right? That, you know, we, that we can sustain things through, right, through, very, right, through various kinds of medical interventions. Uh, so the question was whether the whether the criteria developed for brain death actually was it. Let's think about what death is. Well, we can define it as the absence right, as the absence of brain activity. Good. Now we have a definition, and, right? And we can even have a reliable mean of diagnosis. This is an advance, and you can resist that. In um, and it so happens. Oh, good. Right? Evidence that it's true. It even lets us save lives. We wouldn't otherwise be able to save lives by preserving organs, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, or you could resist, you can resist it on two ways. One is you could resist it by saying that, but we have tradition, right? But we have our traditional means of some self that we, we hold these regardless of the fact that they're not 100% accurate. So we will resist claims to find greater, right? To find greater accuracy um, just because they're not traditional. On the argument of you're telling me that there are infinite number of bugs on my lettuce, well, so what, right? Because I'll determine. That right, what a bug was based on what was visible in their time, and so we can't use fancy machines that were not available in the age, in the age of Chazal to determine death uh, anymore. What do we do in you know proverbial desert islands that don't have right, that don't have fancy right fancy EEG machines to determine death? What are we going to do about that? So you could have traditional resistance um, that way, uh, and you could have alternate resistance by claiming that you're right that hang on a sec, the brain's like every other organ, which means that not every cell in it dies simultaneously. And you're very unlikely to be measuring whether every cell in the brain has died. So you don't have a definition anymore either. You're just shifting the locus of diagnosis from the heart and the lungs to the, uh, right, to the brain, and that's untraditional. All right, so those are two ways. Those are two ways of resisting. The mode that I believe was very popular in, uh, in orthodoxy uh, for answering both these questions in one fell swoop was uh, Rav Tendler's in front of the Raha. Uh, Rav Tendler argued that brain death, in fact, measured the death of every, uh, every cell in the brain. I said it, right, that, brain, that the, when you had brain death, you had total lysis of the brain. The brain had been liquefied. And, right, there's abs- zero functionality, zero electrical activity. Um, and two, that brain death was the equivalent of decapitation. So since we have traditional sources saying that the decapitated um, person is dead, therefore, uh, right, therefore a brain dead person is dead also by traditional criteria. And so that was those right, so that was a really interesting, uh, really interesting and powerful claim. There were other claims. Um, Nachman Rabinovich actually has an earlier article, uh, which is beyond the scope of this, of this year, where he brings an argument from a different Gemara about the about the Rambam. Uh, talking about uh, the twitching of the lizard, lizard's tail um, as evidence for that the brain is the key criterion. Uh, I corresponded with Rabinovich about this before his death, and I think, with great, great trepidation hesitation, I think he misunderstood the Rambam, that he was, uh, so great, great trepidation. I, I corresponded with him, I didn't succeed in persuading, I didn't succeed in, I mean, he was very old, obviously. I did not succeed in explaining to him successfully what it, how it was I read the Ramam and why he should read it, and why, why, why that was a great reading of the Ramam. Okay, so we're going to bracket that question. We'll sing on the Tendler. Uh, Tendler said um, complete lysis and um, that decapitation. So there was a famous um, challenge 
um, that um, you know, but the body is, but it's, but it's, you know, it's, it's. How can you like call it dead? Right? It's, got, it's got a heartbeat. Right? It's got a respiration. We're not talking about cases where you're decapitated and you have a heartbeat and respiration, or which is going to last. Uh, right? That led to a famous um, experiment, um, allegedly demanded by Shlomo Zalman, uh, in which they brought they had a decapitated sheep uh, birth a baby. And the said, "Look, you agree, you all agree decapitation is death, and." Birthing seems to be like a pretty good model of organic functioning. If the Gemara, if you have to agree, so that night, whatever you tell me the body can do, so what? Obviously, things the body can do are relevant because, uh, because, because, because the body can do these things when it's decapitated. Also, obviously, it really matters to the brain. There are all sorts of arguments about what exactly the experiment they did in the experiment, or right? how naturally did it birth, right? What did it prove? Right? But that was the that was one kind of argument, right? Is that um, as to whether as to whether Brenda actually defined something. Um, and it would be a plus if it could define something if we didn't have any other definitions. The bigger issue um, was uh, Roy Bleich, and this became a whole bitter, uh, whole bitter controversy. My teacher Roy Bleich argues that Roy Tender, Roy Tender claimed that Moshe Feinstein, who had a famous earlier truva claiming that heart transplantation was double murder, had changed his mind and accepted, accepted the, brain death, the brain death criterion. Uh, Rabbi Bleich denied the authenticity of the letter. In which uh, Rav Moshe supposedly said this, or denied the reading of the letter in which Rav Moshe actually said this. But what Rav Moshe said, I think, is you know, irrecoverable. Um, Rav Leif also claimed that the tests for uh, electrical activity in the brain were insufficiently sensitive um, because the tests were done by uh, putting dye in the blood and then, right, and then seeing whether the whether the dye appeared in right it appeared in, in scans of in scans of the brain. And if the dye didn't appear, that was uh, that was taken as a claim that there was no blood getting through to the brain, and therefore there was no oxygenation, and therefore everything must be dead. Uh, so Rabbi Bleich said that um, the blood-brain barrier uh, is a very effective filter, and maybe it was filtering out the dye, and the dye molecules were too large, and stuff like that. And at this point, it's 100% clear Rabbi Bleich was right. Uh, right, that we now know that the the Harvard criteria for brain death do not measure the absence of electrical activity in the brain. There's quite a lot of residual electrical activity in the brain afterwards, which just wasn't being measured. And you can look back and say that Roy Tendler was possibly like a shita in medicine of a particular French doctor, um, which um, which is just not true. That, 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 like, just not true. So, so what is the criteria we use now? So we still use the Harvard criteria, but there's a controversy about whether about whether or not it measures anything. There's all these halachic debates back and forth. You know, you know, different rabbinic organizations doing different things. The rabbinic doing different things. The rabbinic requiring additional tests, requiring an apnea test, right? You know, non-breathing tests also. But the answer is right, we're sort of in a mess. <laughs> we're sort of in a mess because, at least I think, because I think that the arguments on the basis of which brain death were accepted. Are not empirically correct. Um, the biggest thing now is that the hypothalamus survives. The interesting thing is the hypothalamus is in the brain, but it's not neurological. Uh, it's part of the endocrine system. But so the people who try and re- so there's an attempt to redefine brain death uh, as the death of the organism is not integrated. But the question is why does the neurological why is the neurological system define the organism as so the endocrine system? Brain dead bodies can temperature regulate. 
I mean, if we were saying, say, like I said earlier, whether something is considered quote unquote human anymore, you think the neurological would be human. Right. So if you want to do it, right. So the challenge, okay. So the challenge with the human definition is that there are many, right, that what makes being human is higher brain activity, right, or consciousness. And that applies to many conditions much more liberal than, um, right, than brain death criteria. Persistent vegetative state, uh, right, uh, irreversible coma, and as what we were going to get, anencephalic um, babies. Right, so the right, so that's why, no, right, that's why that criteria, right, is you know stretches in directions that most people intuitively were unwilling to were unwilling to go. Okay, so that's where we right so. We're facing this halakhically, there is a halakhic landscape, right, you know, you know, and debate, debates back and forth, and the practicality that uh, if the state of Israel doesn't accept the criteria, then the state of Israel will donate many, many fewer organs, and therefore it can't be part of the, co of the European cooperative, right, this just happened, um, um, that Israel has a lower donation, lower cadaver donation rate than other states, and actually got kicked out of the European transplant cooperative, I believe, although it has a higher rate of kidney, rate of live donor, trans, right? So all sorts of interesting challenges and that relates to people's halachic, right? To what, where people come from halachically. Yeah, right. And, and that way, you know, because, right, you have to, right, there's all sorts, you can't store long enough, right? So it matches, right, matches mat, right, matter a great deal. So there's all sorts of practical reasons as opposed to, you know, in addition to moral perception reasons that you want to use a standard that is, that is internationally acceptable. And so the, the Rabbanut Paskin that way, but the Rabbanut Paskin that way, on the basis of uh, in, of, of, of explanations from a tender, uh, right? And there, you know, I should say, right? And you can argue this. I, I, it's like one of the experiences I really enjoyed. Uh, so when I called Rav Gedalia Schwartz in front of Rav, and uh, and it was clear, like you know, and he said, "No, I know that it's not full lysis, but I talked to the neurologist, and, right, and he had an independent ground for um, for reaching this." So I said, "Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman, there are different ways in which you can reach it, and that I don't find that convincing does not mean that you know that I, that I can tell you that was wrong." Doesn't tell you there aren't other ways in which people could try and jury rig, um, right? Ways to get to the same result, but um, but it's hard. Um, so I argued. So I should. There is a the there is a medical ethicist and pediatri pediatric um, pediatrician uh, at Harvard in Robert Truog, uh, who has argued for years and years that um, a fundamental mistake was made when the brain death criteria were adopted. Uh, that people accepted the dead donor rule, that you wouldn't be allowed to take organs from people uh, who were still alive when it would kill them to remove the organs. And that forced you to try and pretend, he thinks, that you were defining death. And that forces you to adopt much more, right, much more uh, stringent criteria than he thinks we really should, that he thinks we should, in fact, be able to take organs from uh, from from people in persistent vegetative states and people in reversible comas and encephalic children, and all, right because he thinks the standard should be worthwhile human life. But you know he's been arguing this for years and years, and arguing that most people are hypocrites, uh, and that nobody nobody really thinks that brain death is death. Um, right, it's just a way to provide cover for people's intuitions. Uh, Alexis Kaplan uh, brought me to a conference at Harvard Medical School uh, a few years ago, which. It, I came out of it, not everybody else did. I came out of it, it like it was a sort of a recreation of the original panel. And to me, like pretty shocking that some of the, the philosopher on the panel right, right, essentially said, well, we didn't have anything 
that could explain why this was the result, but it had to be the result because it was saving lives. So I wrote something which didn't make any sense and everyone just sort of bought it. <laughs> it was like pretty wild, like that there, you know, there was no, there was no pretense that the original criteria had not been, uh, had not been um, totally reverse engineered to enable organization as opposed to, but on the other hand, only to enable organization to the point where you thought politically you could get away with it. Or in a way that, co that, that coordinated with people's intuitions, including those people's intuitions. Okay, but that's the, um, I think everyone, all the, the entire halakhic conversation assumed that the dead donor rule was correct because how could you possibly allow killing one person to save another? That seems like an explicit violation of my chazis de dominidach sumukchve. So I wrote an article um, which appears in volume two of the IRF's collection organization. Nobody, I think, ever gets to volume two. <laughs> So to the extent the article gets read by anybody, it's just because it's uh, it's not academia now. Uh, although I'm very grateful to uh, Rabbi Dr. Zed Farber for commissioning the article. It made me think about it, and to Rabbi Zering for uh, inviting me to give the shir at Hamavasra that turn, uh, for, for Hamavasra Wayu that turned into this article. Um, so I argued that I could not find a way halachically to defend the claim that the donors were dead, and that therefore the only way um, the only way out of it would be to be moderate, even though the donors were not dead. Um, but the problem is, I also take as a first principle, my chazid, right, you know, I, like my manner, my chazid, and how can you justify, right? Isn't that, like, you know, if, if Truog's logic, worthwhile human life, right, is about as clear a violation of my chazid as you can get. Okay, so I made the following argument. Um, the Ramah, based on a um, based on a shulte giborim, has a right, has a category called the goses zman aruch, the person who has been goses for a long time, and is a famous set of things you can and can't do for a goses zman aruch. Right, you can remove the wood chopper, right, but you can't, uh, but you, you can't take the uh, put the salt of the tongue. Right, there are things you can and can't do for a goses zman aruch, and that seems to boil it down to. You can do things that uh, you cannot do things that make him die faster, but you can remove things that make right that would make him die slower. That's a very very delicate. Right, that's a very very delicate um, division. Very how do you even how do you sustain that in practice? And what is a ghost's manaru? Right, what, why why should that be different? Why, why do we? Why is there at a sudden point we stop saying, "Hang on a sec, every every moment of life is valuable," right? And all that, and all of a sudden we start saying, "No, right? You know that it's usher to do things that um, slow the dying, that slow dying down." So there is a. Um, so what I argued is that actually with the Goseis Man Aruch, is everyone agrees that a Goseis Man Aruch should die. Uh, there's no right. There's no purpose for them in keeping them alive, um, and the language used in um, in in brain dead cases by Sitz uh, Eliezer and, and um, by Rechaim David Halevi, they both say there's a distinction between the soul um, being imprisoned in the body and the soul inhabiting the body. When the soul is imprisoned in, when the soul, when the soul is inhabiting the body, your job is to keep the soul uh, inhabiting the body. If the soul is imprisoned in the body, your job is to let the soul free. 
It's a metaphysical claim. It's a metaphysical claim. Yeah. So the question is, does it have any halachic basis? All right. What is it, how, does, what, how does that relate to the passive active standard in uh, right in that people understand the Ramah and the and the, and the Shulukibarim is establishing, even though nobody quite knows how to set the difference between passive and active in any of their in, in any of their cases. So what I argued is that the that the passive active standard had been misunderstood. It wasn't actually right. The passive active standard was a diagnostic test and not a moral test. That right, you couldn't know whether the person was a ghost man aruch unless they died. If you took this away, and if you did something actively to kill them, you would never know if they were ghost man aruch. There might be certain things that would only kill a ghost. Right, that would, right, that would only kill a ghost man aruch. But they didn't. Right, that's not the way the Gemara set that up. But actually, it turns out later, right, that maybe there are certain things like that. But in, in the Ramah, that's not the case. So I argue that the Ramah actually believed in principle that you could shoot a ghost man aruch. Um, right, it didn't cause them pain. It's just that if you shot somebody, you'd never know if they were a ghost of Manorah. The only way to know if they were a ghost of Manorah is if they died um, at the slightest, right, at the, sli- at the slightest change. All uh, right, I argued, you know, my test case was that, um, test case was, never remember this, right, that, that, um, that according to the standard perception of Allah, which distinguishing passive and active, you could imagine, you would have a nurse sitting by the bedside of a patient with a ventilator holding a gun. Uh, right, the nurse is holding the nurse is holding a gun in one hand and the plug to the ventilator in the other hand. A man bursts in the room, threatens to shoot the person. Well, the nurse shoots that person because they're a rodef, and then pulls the plug. Because he'll argue that removing the ventilator is just a passive thing, <laughs> right? Just removing a support, right? So, I, see, me that was an absurdity. The claim that you could create a situation where you could simultaneously kill somebody as a rodef, and yet you could cause that person's death. And in fact, there's no difference between active and passive logically active, right? Passive shrikhuzamin is still shrikhuzamin. Uh, right? You can't pull the plug. You can't pull the plug from a healthy person. So why can you pull the plug? Right? Why can you pull the plug? Right? Either it's kill- it's enough of an, right. The, the passive active distinction has no basis halakhically in that um, in that regard. That's my argument. Um, so I argue that the ghost manaruch was the classical case of somebody who right who has an interest in dying, not an interest in living, um, and Therefore, right, and that's right, and that practically it had never there had never been a case in which you could, in which you could determine that somebody only has an has an interest in dying rather than living, and therefore in practice all you could do is was remove things because a person who was only whose was interest was in dying would die if you if you remove those things and other people wouldn't. Okay. Okay. Based on that, then I said, but maybe the brain dead person qualifies. Definitionally, as a goseis manorach, whom there is no duty to save, and actually, it would be perfectly permissible, uh, perfectly permissible to shoot them in right in uh, in principle, not because they're dead, but because their souls are imprisoned in their body. Based on that, so I wanted to argue as follows. So what happens with brain dead patients is that what we should be doing is killing them. We're keeping them alive, not because we have we're serving any of their interests. We're keeping them alive because we want them to serve as as organ donors. And then when we remove the organs, we're not taking their life as a means to somebody else's 
Right? We, we kept them alive as a means to someone else's life. But we're killing them for their own sake. And so therefore I thought that halachically we could reach the result as scary as it was that, that actually that brain death, was, brain death was an exception to the, um, to the dead donor rule. Right, that halakhically, halakhically it was permitted to, um, right, to kill brain-dead patients for the sake, uh, right, um, period. And then if you wanted to kill them in a particular way, which took longer for the sake of Pekot Nefesh, okay, will allow you to prolong death for the sake of Pekot Nefesh. And that wasn't the violation of my chazis, because, uh, right, because, uh, because we're, not using the, we're not using one person's life as an end to the other. It might be a violation of my chazis in terms of Using the person's extent continued life, right? but that I think is an ethical problem that can be solved. Um, that's not what my husband is intended is intended to prevent. Although it's an interesting argument whether it can be justified or not. Okay, right. That's so. That's that. Right. That was the that was the big finish of thinking about my husband philosophically in that way. That if we think about it as means as means versus ends, so we can construct a circumstance in which, in fact, it is permitted to do an act of killing in order right to say to say uh, to save a life so long as the motivation for the act of killing um, is not right is not seeing one life as more uh, seeing one life that a person has an interest in preserving as more valuable than another it might work philosophically it might work a lot it might not okay in the New York Times last week uh, there was an article called when does life stop um, which actually is not presenting something new although um, it but it presents a series of um, challenging questions to the uh, right to the to the whole phenomenon right to the whole phenomenon of how brain death is actually utilized. So brain death was a brain death. People point is a sort of virtuous or vicious cycle that on the on the one hand it increases the availability of organs for transplant. On the other hand, it also increasing availability also radically increases demand. Demand at this point it always increases faster than supply. Uh, so the accepting brain death as a mode of transplant invariably creates more demand to ex- right to expand the definition because there are many more patients who, right, who could benefit. It really puts pressure. No, because transplant transplant technology advances, and so many right, so it becomes more and more possible to save more and more lives. And preservation technology, right? Um, probably even if everybody in the world. Agreed to donate under brain death criteria, that we would still not succeed in meeting uh, in meeting demand of, right, under under the, under those criteria. Um, also possible, the surgeon at BU told me when I gave this presentation at the Maimonides Society many years ago. People disputed this, but uh, he argued then that actually that um, by now there would be no brain dead patients because our treatment of cerebral hemorrhage is so much is so much greater, is, is so much better that uh, brain death happens. When you have an otherwise healthy body with with cerebral hemorrhage, it doesn't help. People die. You know, people die. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. You know. I mean. Right. Sudden. Right. That's how you get a cerebral hemorrhage. Usually. Right. Or you. Right. It could be that you have a healthy body. Yeah. Right. Also. Right. Right. All. Right. All sorts of. But you know. But as treatment got better, so treatment was minute was was diminishing supply. On the other hand, techno- right, te- medical technology was in- right, was increasing demand because so many more people could be uh, could be held, and that puts enormous pressure on the on right, on the on the desire. It increases the desire to find ways of harvesting. 
So there are a number of ethical things that are put in place to try to resist that demand. One is a definition, uh, right? Just requiring death, right? Requiring death is the first is the, is the first barrier to uh, do it. There was a famous novel which I'll run for you by Robin Cook called Coma, uh, which involves the doctor who decided that um, actually, obviously, patients in irreversible comas should, right? You know, there's no reason to keep the organs in them. <laughs> Uh, right, that, that you know that was so that was so the, the dead donor rule was a way of putting brakes on doctors like Robert Truog. Right? Who, um, it, was, it was a conservative position in that right in uh, in that sense. But uh, the problem is that in the course of uh, waiting for um, waiting for brain death, often um, patients deteriorate. Brain death takes right. So uh, right. So waiting. Waiting until their brain will often end up with uh, insufficient supply of healthy organs. So that creates two pressures. One is to try and find ways to intervene medically before people are dead, so that they will make better so they will make better donors. So the ethical rules that are in place were that you could not right, you had you had to right, in principle you had to separate the care team from the transplant team. Uh, right, and it wasn't until right, and it wasn't until the patient was declared dead that the transplant team could come and ask for consent, um, and that you and that the that the doctors taking care uh, of the patient could not be thinking about how to preserve the patient for uh, how to preserve the patient for for organization. They had to be thinking about care, and it's only at such point as it was withdrawal of care. that you could start thinking, you could start thinking of of, of questions like that, and then. You know, so advanced directives are a way of dealing with the consent of, of dealing with the consent issue. But everyone was scared of a situation like there's a patient, you know, and the patient can go both ways. And the transplant team is there saying, like, we have a patient in the next room, um, right? So why are we trying to save this person, right? While you're trying to save this person, their heart's going to deteriorate, and the person in the next room is going to die, right? That's that most people recognize as a terrible conflict of interest. And so, in theory, hospitals are all set up so this is um, right. So these are separated in practice. Yeah, the always always stories and figure out whether you these stories or not. Okay, so here's an so here is the um, so there there's a so there is a different technique which was developed as follows, which has two steps. One step is saying you know what we thought brain death was a liberal criteria was a liberalizing criteria as opposed to cardiac death or respiratory death, but there's a way in which actually it's a humor. The way it's a humor is as follows. There's a difference between the spontaneous cessation of autonomous cardiac activity and respiration and the irreversible cessation of spontaneous respiration and cardiac activity. Meaning that we all that that there is a point after which nobody has ever heard of a heart restarting if it stopped beating, but which everybody understands that you could restart the heart if you wanted to. Ordinarily, right when when we have when we decide for withdrawal of care, right, so we're not going to restart it, right. So the right, so the declaration of death was often made at the moment at which the the heart ceased to be able to right the heart ceased spontaneous autonomous heartbeat, which is fine because you know what was an alchemina? just let people you know get let people you know deal with things earlier, but the kind of what if we allowed the heart to stop, 
for long enough for us to declare the patient dead. And then we restarted it. So what is the patient? Uh, if you declare the patient dead because they have a lack of heartbeat and you're connecting them to the heart-lung machine, so why are they dead? If you're connecting them to the heart-lung machine five minutes, there is nothing different about them physiologically than if you had connected them to the heart-lung the heart machine five minutes ago. The heart is now functioning perfectly again. And hearts, recovered, hearts recover extremely well when they are... Pardon? When did it stop? Because the rest of the body was dead. Uh, no. The rest of the body is dying. Because the rest of the body wasn't dead, we'd be reviving the person. We'd be doing the CPR on the Well, floor. what rest of the body? Not declaring the dead in the hospital. What rest of the body? Uh, right, the person's not brain dead. person can blink. Then why in the world aren't you restarting their heart? I don't understand what the case is. Because you decided that they're because they have no long term prognosis. Their long term prognosis is you know is great pain and death. So they asked for withdrawal of care. So it was drawing care. You're talking here about a person who's alive because of the DNR order. Yeah. Who happens to have a heart attack? Uh huh. They don't happen to have a heart attack. You withdraw right. You withdraw the medications that stabilize right. That stabilize that stabilize their their that stabilize their heartbeat right. Also right. All things like that. They right. They're not capable of staying alive on their own. And so you remove the care that keeps them alive. And now they're dead. And then you put the care back. But in between, you declared them dead. Now, the patients, who, the, the, the surgeons who, uh, who, who started doing this for, um, right, for donation said, ah, you know what, but... So the first question is, does this work? Or do we say that, no, like anybody who can be... Anybody who can be revived according to the same criteria they were declared dead is no longer is no longer dead or was never dead, right? Hallmark locus, right? You know, does does their right does the if they're married, right? Does their wife need to get right if it's a man? No one thinks there's no muscle. Yes, there is. If you do CPR on somebody, people think that they have to remarry. If they're a conjugal, they can't remarry their wife. I didn't think it was a halaki dispute. Yeah, there's, a, no one there's, a, there's a legal dispute. Nobody declares death before CPR because you expect right because then you're intending to. Right, what the hop was that the legal definition of death is permanent cessation of respiration, and you can say it's permanent if you don't intend to resuscitate them. But the problem is here you do, but you don't intend to do while they're alive. Nonsense. <laughs> so, sense so the problem, what made things worse was if you really just restarted the heart, the patient's not brain dead, and it might not be, it might not be. It might not be. Well, I mean, the definition of death that they have they have permanent cessation of autonomous heartbeat and respiration with a DNR order. Doesn't sound permanent. Sounds like you just undid it. Yeah, well. So you violated the DNR order and kept them alive. Well, except they're dead. You said so. If I'm their relative, I'm suing you. Except you said so. Well, this is all done with consent. This is all done with consent. But it seems like everyone got a little bit squeamish about like what happens if you revive them and then their brain works. And they're conscious. And their brain works. <laughs> kind of right. Nobody suggested doing this for con patients who were who were yet conscious. But um, right. I usually did it with patients with patients in in, uh, in in PVS or in reversible coma. Right. Those are usually the cases where you uh, where you did that. Um, I don't know of any case where you did it with anesthetized um, 
patients. But any case, so the chap was the surgeons do is they clamp off the they clamp off the arteries to the brain when they revive the heart, so that there's no risk of resumption of neurological activity because there's a chashash that the resumption of neurological activity would possible the previous declaration of death on the basis of cardiac activity. Although cardiac activity does not right, does not possible, and everyone agrees there was no neurological activity uh, afterwards. Uh, neurological, uh, sorry, there was neurological activity before. So the question is, does that Right, is this kind of chap, which allows you to declare death, does that still fit within the parameters of, um, of the nation? Now, you can say it's like a much more traditional criteria, right? Because we're using, we're using, we're using cardiac, uh, we're using cardiac criteria, the Chlam Sofer would be very happy. Um, and the Chlam Sofer would have declared death, but that's because he didn't have any way of restarting. And so the question is, is there any way in which halachically we would allow uh, who would allow this? There's another way which happens also, which is that the um, the uh, you can also, um, in order to make it more likely that the heart and other organs will survive the period, you have to wait when there's no heartbeat. And how long that period is is a separate question. And you can watch in experiments is that right? You know, they say you know they say look we waited this long, and then it turned out the the organs didn't survive, so we decided to wait this long. <laughs> all right, so all pressure you know moving back to. 75 seconds, I think, at the minimum. Um, <clears throat> although usually it's going to say something like five minutes. Um, this is why when people ask me the question, I ask him that you should wait to, um, you should wait to uh, declare halachic death about half an hour after, uh, after the hospital declares death um, because, you, because that way you get to permanent cessation and not permanent cessation of autonomous. That's uh, um, Heartbeat. Um, so what they do is they inject an anticoagulant into the right, into the blood into the bloodstream prior to cardiac death, um, because that will also right, that will make it that that will make it much easier to resume to resume perfusion. So you have right. So that's right. So now we're really moving there. Right now, our now care during life is right is aimed at um, is aimed at uh, donation. And um, then you can also, the, the, there was a while when, like a two-year period, when the, um, when the AMA allowed this to happen for anencephalic children as well, um, where you could treat them as donors from birth and prep them as donors from, right, from birth. And um, then it was reversed two years later. And uh, that's that. That's still uh, an ongoing issue. So the question I was asking is, does this fit even my? Right, I think there's no way. I guess I, I mean you could say right that this is a a fine halachic method because it uses a, a mode of determining death which is perfectly uh, right, which is which is perfectly existed in halacha, and so halachically this is fine. Um, you could make the argument if you wanted. Um, I, I, you know, you could argue that I am, you know, that this works by my criteria also because you're dealing with people. The whole point is you're dealing with withdrawal of, right, with withdrawal of care. On the other hand, it requires you to expand the definition of soul imprisoned far beyond um, brain death. And I at least, you know, share the squeamishness of all those surgeons and say, no, I'm not willing to call all those people go say it's Manaruch. Though it's a good question to me. Why not? Right, why, 
Uh, so part of it, I think, you know, I have to concede is that I think we have determined over time that we have a very bad sense of what the brain is capable of when injured. The many things that we used to think were, were impossible, the brain can't do them, really can do it. So the claim that a patient who has brain activity is incapable of experience, maybe, maybe not, we don't really know how the brain works, but incapable of resuming consciousness. So yeah, that probably were, there are very, very cases where, where people resume consciousness. Um, I think we could probably develop criteria that would have as close to 100% rate of knowing no return consciousness under current technology as we could. And that's a really good, big challenge to me as to whether in the, where, as to whether the category of ghosts monorail would extend to people who are permanently unconscious. Um, I have a bias towards consciousness. Um, just as a challenge thinks that know that all the, that all the real work, all the real religious work takes place while you're asleep. And so dreaming is when you, but he doesn't believe in free will. So that's a whole, right? So that's a whole issue. So I'm just putting it out. I, I think that they, you can see how the, the pressure is inevitable. Um, and, you know, and so the argument I made is in some ways more subject to the pressure because I'm, you know, I'm not using death as the absolute. On the other hand, in this case, it might be ironically that my, def- that my approach is less of a slippery slope because it, right, it doesn't allow you to play games with declaring death, uh, which traditional definitions do. You can just pick your definition of death, the definition of death, the death you want now. Um, okay, yes, Deborah. Has there ever been a case of a baby with anencephaly achieving something you could describe as No. It have lived a lot longer than people expected. You, right, whatever we've learned about the brain or not learned about the brain or don't know about the brain, it seems like that's a case that is different than the other, the other cases we talked about. Yeah, so people tried to, right, there was a, a there were movements which I think got success in one state for a while and then didn't, right, and then pulled off in which people said the definition of death is people who are, right, people who are brain dead or who have never been, never had the possibility of consciousness. Like a jury rigged definition just for anencephalic children. Can I ask you? Yeah. Is you, the, so that way they were dead, unborn. Saying our ghost yeah. Are they the I wouldn't say comfortable. People are willing to say. Are they the same category of people that you'd be willing to issue a DNR order? Uh, no. No, I think there are people you can issue a DNR order for that, you know, I think much more liberally. People can make choices about whether life is worth it to them, which is not the same as objective declaration. No, I mean a third party issuing a DNR order for an unconscious person. Uh, no, because I think we could say a third party also. Um, you can argue that, you know, that um, for certain people, resuscitation is um, right is unlikely to do anything other than cause them pain, and so you can do a cost-benefit ratio that uh, right that it's not necessary to undergo ex- extraordinary pain for a very very small chance of life. Because you think the resuscitation itself? Is yeah, right. I, th- I don't think the inner orders connect to um, connect to that at all. Uh, the question is whether we're really you know willing to come with the notion of it's not human life unless, right, unless, um, right, unless it's conscious. Whether there's a way to get to the result that human life, you know, having had consciousness is different than human life that never will have consciousness. Um, I, I, I am very, very leery about doing this, and I also think, but I also, you know, I also have deep problems with accepting organs under circumstances you wouldn't donate. 
So this raises right. So if if this is as common as the New York Times makes it out to be, so that raises the whole question, right? Do you, as a halachic Jew, have to inquire about the source of your right about the source of any potentially transplanted organ? So right, if it if it was uh, removed if it was removed under these circumstances, is it also to take it because that makes you a post facto accessory by participating in the system, which drives that right? So I think this raises all sorts of much bigger questions than just the question of. Uh, of that, and I think it means like you know, even if, and I wrote the article, and you know, I said it was mutter, and I said it was mutter for a very simple reason because I couldn't imagine that if somebody asked me the shaila that I would tell them it was usher. Uh, right at the end of the day, if I'm not willing to paskin that it's usher for somebody to stay alive by doing this, then I can't paskin this usher to donate because that right, that seems to me a moral monstrosity. Uh, right, that the famously right the you know some rabbis I won't mention names. Ended up saying, "Well, it's a suffix, so you can't donate, but it's much to take." Right, and that—that's not a position I'm willing to. I'm, I'm willing to entertain. Um, so, um, yes, I think that I think that, but it's clear that we're you know dealing with a with a with a, a circumstance which, if you take as your lodestar my um, chazid, so this isn't right. This is a a constant um, risk, and it plays both ways, right? Either you say, "Okay, my chazi is therefore you need, right? Therefore, you can only take it from the dead," so that puts pressure on the definition of death. Uh, or the my way, which you know, where you have to make sure that one life is not more valuable than the other, so it constantly puts right puts pressure on your notion of, on your notion of value, right? So, right that there's no way in a circumstance like this that you can't be under enormous moral pressure, which means you have to constantly monitor. You can't know, right? It's one of the circumstances where you can't know just because it was mutter last week that, right, that somebody hasn't come up with some kind of radical new, right, radical new approach in the past week. You know that yeah, week is exact, right? But I the definition of how, of you know, of the anencephalic cases changed back and forth in two years as to what was considered practice. It's different than right. Every country has its own regulations for each of these things. I think we need to um, have <coughs> at least among halachas, we need to have a more sophisticated approach, right? To what extent you want to, right? You want to give a, you know a much more nuanced guidance to the community. That's a um, that is you know that that's a public policy question, uh, right? What's what's your you know what's if you give guidance that in practice, right? So I'm giving guys like mutter, but in practice you have to go through 15 steps of verification that mean that nobody ever meets. So I can say the mitzidi, I need enough shi salty. I told you it's right. I hold perfectly it's mutter. It's just the failure. Of the, um, it's just the failure of the, of the hospitals to be willing to conform to my guidelines, right? So in Israel, right, the lachis can make the hospitals that it's create enough pressure that the hospitals will conform to their guidelines because they want um, Orthodox people to donate. In the U.S. obviously there isn't enough of a market among Orthodox Jews to uh, right to create any kind of pressure like that. So you can't change things like that. Should point out right that the case is actually you know that I gave you, it, you can make the case either simpler or harder. But sometimes, instead of restarting the heart spontaneously in the body, you just all right. You just, you connect right. You connect the body to um, right to to a heart lung machine, essentially. Or you right. Or you take the heart out and you put it in a box and you start it separately. But you still declared the patient dead by heart criteria, and then you take the heart out and then you restart the heart. Right. So obviously, you could have restarted the heart in the patient, and that would have had the same results. Right. So, it's so I get the, the extreme case is. Which is which is cheaper than the method of using machinery, and for now more effective is just to restart the heart in the body. 
but there are other but there are other protocols where people are skimish about that. Particularly, they're skimish about cutting off the cutting off the uh, the you know, the clamping off the arteries to the brain. So they rather take the heart out and start it separately in a box, and meanwhile connect the rest of the body to uh, right to heart to to heart to heart lung machine and make sure it right. Yeah. So there aren't any solutions that don't. Uh, but this makes a lot more hearts available, and people die waiting for transplants. Otherwise, um, so it takes really being willing to call. Yes, fewer people will be alive. Fewer of the people, fewer of the people currently alive, will be alive in a year because of this moral rule. But I think it's worth it. Right? That's a very, that's a very very hard call. That's a very very hard call. I think we sometimes have to make that call. Um, but I think we should be explicit. That's what we're talking about. All right. Thank you. That uh, that takes us through.